a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 83, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics series. Covering Marvel's licensed sci-fi comics from cover date June 1978. Featuring Star Wars, number 12, Godzilla, number 11, Human Fly, number 10, Man from Atlantis, number 5, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 13, and issue number 3 of both Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Marvel's Cosmic Comics, a presentation of the comic book Time Machine. And this time we are taking the Time Machine back to 1978 once more. We will be going back to August of 1978. And why are we going back to August of 1978? Because that's when the November cover date issues hit the stands. And we want to make sure we hit the stands in time. We don't want to wait until September or October where it's possible that those issues are not on the stand anymore because people bought them. Although I guess if we have a time machine and we go back to the wrong place where there's no copies left we could just go back in time a little bit to before the last issues were purchased but that's neither here nor there that's just taking issue with how i use time travel and you know what here's the way time travel works it works the way the story needs it to work i mean if you watch a time travel movie or read a time travel book or read a time travel comic book or watch a time travel tv show the rules of time travel work the way it needs to work. Maybe it changes the future. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you change the future into what the future would actually be the way we know it from some sort of other weird other future. doesn't matter. What we are doing right now is we're just going back in time to buy some comics to read them. And the comics we are buying are from Marvel. They are all licensed. None of these comics are Marvel superhero characters, although some of them are superheroes. Some of them take place in the Marvel Universe and have superhero characters as guest stars or as, um, you know, even regular um, supporting cast, as in the case with with Godzilla, where I guess you wouldn't call Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe uh, superheroes, but they're from the Marvel superhero universe. But... These are licensed by Marvel from other sources. In the case of Godzilla, which is another comic that we're going to be reading in this cycle, the November 1978 cover date cycle, it's a movie series. In the case of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, it's a book series. In the case of The Human Fly, it's a real-life stuntman. And in the case of Star Wars, well, if you don't know what Star Wars is and you're listening to this podcast, I... I hope that I don't use too much language that you don't understand, but I shouldn't. I mean, you should be able to follow along. You should be able to follow along, but we'll, we'll see. Anyway, uh, November 1978 was the cover date, and there's not a lot going on here as far as the licensing of comics go. I am waiting patiently for some of the other things that I'm very excited about as far as 
new titles that are coming, but I also have to say the books I'm going to be talking about in this November 1978 cycle of the November cover date, I'm excited about them. Um, there's not a lot, but Godzilla, we have some Western stuff that was going on. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, we have the Chris Claremont run happening right now. Star Wars features actually the Star Wars cast. Last issue of Star Wars, issue 16, didn't, except for like in one page. And then you have the Human Fly, which, well, it's, it is what it is. So let's let's start our, our first segment here. We always start with Star Wars. That's where we're going to start with this one. And then we will make our way through the month, issue by issue. And I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, but I'll by the time this episode has been recorded, when I get to the closing moments, I'll know if I'm going to go to Godzilla or Human Fly next, because I always start with Star Wars and usually end with John Carter, Warlord of Mars. So... Star Wars number 17 coming up right about now. Playing that sounder. The cover of Star Wars issue number 17 says Adventures Beyond the Greatest Space Fantasy Film of All. Although I don't know if I would say that this goes beyond that film, but we'll get to it. It says, special issue, an untold tale of Luke Skywalker's past crucible. And it has a picture of Luke Skywalker. There's some skyhoppers flying in the sky behind him. There's two suns in the sky. There's a crashed land speeder. There's some Jawas who are getting ready to, <laughs> to uh, loot the land speeder and, and take the pieces. And then there's a handful of Tusken Raiders or sand people who are pointing at Luke Skywalker and shaking their staffs. And that's our cover. It's actually a pretty exciting cover. And you know what else is exciting is that um, it's by uh, Dave Cockrum and Bob McCloud. Dave Cockrum, the penciler, the Bob McCloud, the inker. And it's it's a nice cover, and, and I, I like it. I like it a lot. This is one that, um, if it was available as some sort of wall art, I would consider it very, very carefully and probably would not be able to help myself. I would probably just go ahead and purchase it. Um, I, I have a handful of things. I don't have any place to put them, but I do have a handful of wall art uh, from comic book cover artwork. And if I had a place to put it, it'd be up on the wall right now. Right now, it's instead under my desk in a place... I just had an idea where I could put it. I, I'm not going to worry about that right now. I'm going to podcast right now. So let's talk about this issue then. Uh, let's let's talk about what's going on here. Last issue, we had a bounty hunter guy, and he messed around with Han Solo's old friends from Han Solo's Magnificent Seven Days. And that includes, like, Jackson the Space Rabbit. And that's basically, we spent all of our time with him. Not a bad story, but Han, Leia, Luke, Chewie, the droids, nowhere to be found. Now, the team was last seen in action in issue number 15, where they dealt with Red Jack the Pirate, and they escaped in the Millennium Falcon. And the last panel of that issue, I had to go back and check just to make sure um, and see, but the last issue, or last panel of that issue, had them flying away in the Millennium Falcon to head home on their long trip. This issue, issue 17, opens with Luke in a splash page. He is taking one of the shifts. Uh, he is in on the bridge of the Millennium Falcon, and he's, he's flying. He's making sure that all is well. 
And the captions tell us that he's smiling. The art doesn't. But as he's sitting there, uh, bored, his mind takes him back. Back. Back to a flashback to Tatooine. And he remembers. He remembers the past. He remembers targeting womp rats in his land speeder and killing one one-handed with his rifle in not a skyhopper but a land speeder and now that womp rat will no longer eat any more vaporator cables and he'll also get a bounty for it he remembers or at least extrapolates in his memory that tuscan raiders were watching and waiting. He remembers fighting with his uncle about chores and about his friends. Biggs is going to have a going away party the next day and Luke wants to go. And not only does Luke want to go, he looks up to Biggs, but uncles just don't understand, but aunts do. And she convinces Owen to let Luke go. He remembers dreaming about being out there in space, a space hero. A commander leading others into combat, leading others into victory, and winning the kiss of a damsel who is no longer in distress. He remembers going to Beggar's Canyon for Biggs's farewell celebration, and any adult on Tatooine will tell you to avoid this twisting, mile-deep testament to the power of erosion, and any teenager will tell you it's the only place on a dull, backwater planet to find a few thrills. He remembers the dangerous race through the canyon, passing his friends as they drop out one by one until it's just Luke and Biggs, the best pilots there are, with Biggs barely in the lead before Luke can make his move. Biggs breaks with his thrusters, and Luke is forced to pull up and lose ground and lose the race. He remembers a land speeder crashing near the party, a land speeder holding a militia scout who brings a warning of Tuscan raiders who are out for vengeance because someone accidentally polluted one of their sacred wells. And then that someone is revealed to be weapon smugglers and those weapons are now in the hands of the Tuscan raiders and they are on their way, going to take out farm by farm. He remembers being attacked and under fire, making a break for one of the skyhoppers but being cut off by one of the raiders who throws his staff, strikes Biggs, and gets shot by Luke because of it. Biggs is wounded, possibly by sandbat venom on the tip of the staff, so Luke must be the one who flies. He remembers flying low to avoid the fire of the raiders and having to fly through the mountains instead of over them, but that also means flying through Diablo Cut, something no one has ever done but farms are in danger including luke's and friends are in danger as the poison works its way through biggs's system he remembers zigging and zagging and finally coming out into the clear only to come under fire by the sand people and crashing the skyhopper he remembers carrying biggs to his uncle who still doesn't quite understand <laughs> and he tells his uncle to have aunt beru make the call to let people know what's going on. He remembers after Biggs is cared for and after the Tuscan Raider situation has been concluded, how he reached in somewhere deep to make it through and did the impossible. And that, quote, 
it was almost like some kind of test. And whatever else comes out of today, I feel like I passed it. He remembers the events of the first Star Wars movie once more in a single page. And then Han Solo breaks him out of his reverie and Luke is very, very happy where he is now. So here's my thoughts. We had Archie Goodwin. He's the writer-editor. You have Chris Claremont, who was the plot. Herb Trimpey, Al Milgram did the art. Herb Trimpey, yay! Rick Parker was the letterer. Mary Severin was the colorist. And Jim Shooter was the consulting editor. And issue 17 of Star Wars is a fill-in issue. Clearly a fill-in issue, but not a bad one, I don't think. We'll, we'll talk more about it at the end, but... Um, here's, here's some random thoughts. The Vaporator. Um, that's something that, uh, I mean, everything that happens in here was referenced in the Star Wars movie. Very easily referenced in the Star Wars movie. The Vaporator, I mean, they were on a moisture farm. And this is a situation of science fiction becoming science fact. Uh, recently on Facebook, I saw some people were trying to raise money for these cheap machines to go into places where there, where people do not have access to water or have, do not have access to clean water. And these are machines that totally remind me of the moisture collectors. They draw moisture from the air. Uh, they, well, they draw air uh, down into this reservoir underground. And then the moisture from the air... Uh, condenses on the sides of this thing and then collect in this reservoir and it becomes a sustainable source of water for people without clean water and i saw this video and i'm watching it and i'm just thinking to myself that that that's star wars that's luke's family that's what they did they farmed moisture and i don't know if this is a thing that's actually in production right now or if this is a thing that they're trying to raise money for uh you know before they can do any kind of um like actual product creation but it's meant to be a very cheap and easy source for water uh, in places where it's just, you know, they have, people have to walk for miles to get to the water hole and then it's not even clean water. It's a safer place, a safer way for them to get the water and an easier way for them to get the water. And they can focus their time on more other important things. I don't know if they're more important, but um, it's a wonderful, wonderful product. And I, I just watching uh, this video, I'm just thinking, wow, they... They made it a reality. Uh, another thought, um, the bounty for the Womp Rats. At first, I thought, man, he's just driving around shooting Womp Rats. <laughs> What's going on? Well, then we get the the concept that he's shooting them because they bite into the vapor vaporator cables. And then there's also a bounty for them, probably because they are such a nuisance. This is not something that does... Let me rephrase. This is something that has historical precedence. Uh, I recently listened to a podcast. I can't remember if it was from How Stuff Works or from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but it's from the whole, the whole uh, Stuff You Should Know uh, podcast network, which, by the way, is really the only professional podcast that I listen to. Um, and by professional, I mean that's like their day job where they create content for their website and then they record podcasts. There are people who do podcasting professionally because they're getting paid to do so. But um, this is, you know, kind of one of those different levels of, of professional, I guess. Anyway, they did a whole episode about bounties for things like this. And it was very interesting. Uh, the rats and the cobras particularly. But you had uh, cities with rats problems. And so what they would do is they would put a bounty on the rats. And then they realized, oh, that's 
so heavy for them to have to like travel through the sewers with these rat bodies. So they would then say, well, just bring in the tails. But then they realized that the bounty hunters who were, they were just cutting off the tails of the rats and then letting them go. And that way the population was allowed to still grow, which is the exact opposite of what the bounty hunters were supposed to be doing. And the exact opposite of what the people of the city wanted to happen. The rats weren't being taken care of. The rats were just having, just losing their tails. So they're paying, the bounty hunter for killing a rat that's still out there uh, mating and creating smaller rats that have tails so that they can do the cycle all over again. Uh, something similar happened. I don't know if this is a real story. I think that if I remember correctly, they thought this might be have been one of those kind of legend things that didn't actually happen. But it sounds like it could have happened. A uh, city in India that had problems with cobras. And so they were like, you know, bring us, you know, we'll pay you every, for every cobra you bring in. But what people started doing was raising cobras. <laughs> and so um, they're bringing in cobras that they had raised and had, you know, in, you know, baskets or, or cages or something. And they bring the cobras in, they get paid for them. Those cobras are dead, but they have more cobras back home that are mating. And so then when they stopped paying out, the cobras were just released into the wild. And so now you had another just like explosion of population of cobras. So anyway, that's what this reminded me of. Another note, um, when we have the uh, uncles just don't understand scene where Luke is arguing with Uncle Owen, uh, it's Amperu who comes to Luke's rescue and is like, you got to let him go. You let a brother leave without saying goodbye. And so we have a little bit of talk about Luke's father. And this is one of those things where um, you kind of, you know, always expected that Darth Vader was Owen's brother or Baru's brother. And, and it didn't work out quite that quite that way. Luke's dream. Luke's dream when he is daydreaming about going out there and being a hero. It's a cool page. It's a single splash page. Um, I shouldn't say a splash page. It's a single page, though, of all of these these things that he's doing. He's flying a, a starship that's not an X-Wing, but looks like it could, you know, it's something similar. Um, he's running into battle with a gun. He takes out the bad guy with his fists, and then he gets to kiss the girl. And what's fun about that is that later on, then you have a kind of mirror image, not physically, but emotionally of the reality that he lived through and you know the reality he lived through is actually pretty close you know he's flying against the space station he's you know he was running around the space station he was fighting bad guys and he helped save the girl and but just those two pages i thought that's really interesting you have the one page with all the images of his daydream and the other page with all the images of reality and the way that they are staged is, is very, very similar. And it, it's, it's a cool little element, a cool element. Um, then you have the race and, you know, this is kind of cool because Luke and his friends were, um, you know, if they weren't stand-ins for George Lucas's teenage years, they were definitely reflections of George Lucas's teenage years. As you, and actually very close to what you saw in, uh, in American Graffiti. Uh, with the the racing, uh, the hot rod racing culture that they had there. And that's what was going on here is very, very similar. And the, the party that they're having, they just all park their sky hoppers and they're just like hanging out around there in the desert. Felt It felt very American graffiti. 
Now the Tuscan Raiders, there's one interesting element that's going on here. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Tuscan Raiders. I mean, they just do what they do. And I had a friend who called them the rednecks of Star Wars, which is kind of true if you think about it, where they're just in, you know, Phantom Menace. They're just taking pot shots at the racers as they're driving by. And, you know, they're just attacking people who come into their territory and that sort of thing. But um, the the way that they describe why the Tuscan Raiders are so angry, it's because someone accidentally poisoned one of their sacred wells. And that's a, that's a nice little detail. And, and that's one of those little details that when you're a science fiction writer, it's nice to just throw these things in there that could be something so much bigger. You could really explore it if you wanted to, but we don't need to. It just makes sense. You know, it, it makes sense that people who live off the land in Tatooine would hold something like a well as something that is sacred. And it reminded me of Dune where, you know, someone who cries, I mean, water is so precious that when you cry because someone has died or something, you're giving them your, your water and, you know, it's going to get recycled, but you're, you're losing a little bit of water and you're actually losing a little bit of life to cry for someone on Arrakis in, in Dune. And so for these guys to hold wells as something that is very sacred to them, that totally makes sense. And it's one of those little details that I find just, it's a fun bit of writing there. Now, here's the other things going on though, is, is this whole story is prequel storytelling. Now it's not part of the prequel trilogy, obviously it's prequel storytelling in that it is all about someone before the movie. And the whole thing that is happening here is this all just pointing at what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, what's coming. And that's the one thing that I, I just feel, and it's very difficult to get past it because that's the purpose of doing a story. The purpose of doing a flashback story is to give you insight into the person's past. What makes it cheesy or what makes it uh, cliche for me is when you're getting this insight into someone's past but it's more about making statements about the future. And that's what's happening here. You know, because now you transition from him, you know, he daydreams, he has this actual adventure and, and wins and saves his friend. And then you get this panel where he just can't help thinking that this is preparing him for something. This was a test and he passed it and now he's ready for something's going to happen in his future. That's kind of silly to me. The other thing is on the page where you get to see his adventure from the movie and they're going through all the events with the Death Star and stuff. Darth Vader is hard to draw even for Herb Trimpey. It's just the way it is. Another funny thing that I thought about was that he is daydreaming and as he's daydreaming, he's daydreaming about daydreaming. <laughs> he's, he's a dreamer. He's a dreamer. And we get to the end and it says next issue, the hand of the empire. So overall, this is a fine issue. There's nothing new. Um, we get Luke reaching out to the force before he knew what it was. We get his friend Biggs. We get to see that they have this friendship thing going on. Uh, you get to see the racing culture of Tatooine. You get to see Luke daydreaming. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good story. I enjoyed myself while reading it. It's just, it bothers me when I see something that's so obviously Okay, well, let me stop for myself for a minute. You can't help when you're telling a story that happens before a movie or before, and if you're telling a story that happens before another story, but you're telling that prequel story 
after the original story has been produced. You can't help but you know want to be clever and drop hints. I just feel like in this situation, Chris Claremont with the plot, and then um, uh, and then Archie Goodwin with the writing. I, I just feel like they're just trying to be too clever. You know, he feels like he passed a test and now he's ready for something in his future. Turn the page. Yep. The movie you just saw. So there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Like I said, though, it's, it's a good solid fill in story. And next issue, we're going to get back on track. And also hopefully next issue, my throat is going to be feeling a lot better. So the big question is going to be, uh, do I talk about Human Fly next or do I talk about Godzilla next? And I think I'm going to go with Godzilla. So next segment is going to be Godzilla issue number 16. So this issue of Godzilla King of the Monsters is actually the second part of two. This is kind of an offshoot of uh, the main storyline that was going on with S.H.I.E.L.D. chasing him down and creating Red Ronin. That does not they, – they don't even appear in this issue. Uh, last issue, Godzilla was off in the West. He was dealing with some cowboys at a dude ranch, and now he's dealing with them some more. And I guess, you know, most sci-fi shows, especially old-school sci-fi shows, they have that Western episode. Just off the top of my head, I can think of a Western episode in Star Trek The Next Generation. Star Trek, Red Dwarf, um, well, Twilight Zone, but that's that doesn't really count. Uh, but, you know, they have those episodes where they either go back in time or they, you know, some Western world is created for them. And in this issue, well, he doesn't go back in time. And it's not a situation where the Western world is created for him. This is actually... Uh, people from the 1970s, you know, and honestly, you know, I, I take, uh, I used to brag a little bit about how my grandfather was a cowboy. Uh, the truth is he was a cowboy and he rode the range in California, uh, horse threw him, he broke his leg and he had to ride the range in his pickup truck afterward. And I always thought that was kind of funny, you know, when I was a kid because, oh, wait, he was a cowboy. And then finding out, oh, he was a cowboy who drove his pickup truck around. Well, you know, cowboys are needed as long as we have cows that we're going to be using for things like, well, slaughter. So anyway, this is taking place in real time, 1978. Um, as far as the world, that's what the way the world looks in this, this magazine. I know that there is that Marvel timeline where seven years of Marvel comics equals one year of actual time for them. Uh, they age one year in seven kind of thing. So that way the world can keep going and we can have all these different presidents and stuff like that. But the characters don't develop that fast because you only get 12 stories each each year because there's 12 months. Anyway, um, this is a Western episode. I mean, you, you can't say it's not because these aren't cowboys from the old West. These are definitely cowboys. They are from the new West or the modern West or the contemporary West. I guess we could call it uh, of the 70s. But the truth is. Um, you are meant to be thinking about all those old cowboy movies. And this comes from the names of the people. There's a, a guy named Ford and a guy named Hawks. And those are uh, plays on, or, or references rather, to Western directors. And the things that they say, the way that they talk, um, they they definitely are, are, are playing into just that, that cowboy movie kind of mode. 
So Godzilla King of Monsters number 16 uh, came uh, the cover date, obviously November 1978, which means that's when they pulled it off the shelves. It went on the shelves August 1st, 1978. And the writer was Doug Mensch, still uh, the, the artist Herb Trimpey, who is probably the best artist that we see on this magazine. Uh, Daniel Green does the inks. Bob Hall is the editor. Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. Gene Simic, the letterer. And Francois Mouly is the colorist. And the title is, like I said, The Great Godzilla Roundup. So here's what happens. It's night at a ranch just east of Salt Lake City. And Godzilla is going for his midnight stroll through the ranch and through the ranch house. Fortunately, the cowboys who were inside the ranch house last issue... When we had our cliffhanger as Godzilla was stepping on to the ranch house, they have escaped through the window. And we know that they escaped through the window because one of them is yelling as they are running away from the house. We went through that window just in time, Mr. Hawks, mainly because the window don't exist anymore. <laughs> so I just want to say that's kind of the level of some of the writing that, that happens here. There's a lot of jokey stuff going on in here. Uh, Godzilla continues on his way, though. He doesn't care about the insects who inhabit the land below him as he walks. Uh, of course, the, the insects care. <laughs> Boy, howdy, do they care. So that morning, they call a meeting because they care uh, that allows them to talk about their problems and figure out a plan of action and also allow us to meet once more our cast of characters. Now, our cast of characters are Mr. Hawks, who has lost half of his herd of cattle. Uh, he thinks he's lost it to Godzilla, and he is now ruined, and he wants one thing. He wants revenge. He wants Godzilla dead. <laughs> he wants his family dead. He wants his house burned to the ground. I mean, he is not happy with what Godzilla has done to him and to his business. Now, speaking of business, we have Mr. Ford, who is a rival rancher. And he actually, when he realizes that uh, Mr. Hawks doesn't even care about his, his herd anymore, and he's going to get rid of it probably because Mr. Hawks, having lost half of his herd, um, he doesn't have enough cattle left to be able to get his ranch running the way it needs to run because he needs to keep things moving. You know, you, you can't slaughter everything because you have to have you know, you have to have new cattle get, being produced. So he offers to buy Hawks, Hawks's remaining cattle at rock bottom prices. And Hawks is just no way I wouldn't sell it to you for any price. I would rather die than sell it to you. I hate you. Um, he stops short of saying, I want you dead. I want your family dead, that kind of thing. But uh, he does not like Mr. Ford. What he doesn't know, but what we do know, is that Mr. Ford is actually the one who has been stealing Hawks's cattle and who was originally planting bones and then was going to start the story of like cow mutilations with UFOs or something like that. And now he doesn't have to because Godzilla is just around and Godzilla is not eating the cattle, but um, he's getting blamed for it because Mr. Ford it just sees the opportunity. We also meet Lefty, who works for Hawks, but is working with Ford. And then there's a bunch of other cattlemen who are working for Hawks and working for Ford. But they all are going to go after Godzilla. So they all set out after Godzilla, and we actually have someone yell out, The Great Godzilla Roundup is underway! Yee-haw! So they follow Godzilla all the way to this box canyon. And this box canyon is where Ford and Lefty, 
have been hiding Hawks' cattle. So that's a problem. If Godzilla is going to go there and everyone's going to follow him into the Box Canyon, then everyone's going to realize that the cattle aren't dead. Uh, they are alive. And, and uh, of course, I don't know how long they will stay alive if Godzilla walks through them. But um, anyway, Ford's getting nervous because this means, you know, they're going to find out. So he sends Lefty to go and do something about it. And actually... Okay, there's a lot of dumb stuff going on as far as chasing down Godzilla, but the something that Lefty does is actually pretty smart. He starts an avalanche that halts Godzilla's march. The avalanche falls and, and fills in the gap of the canyon that is, you know, his natural path. And so this causes, unfortunately, Godzilla to turn and face the posse that is looking to bring Godzilla in. Uh, the caption tells us Godzilla wanted to avoid this, but then he sees, you know that they're just these little things. And then the caption says, but it seems he has little to fear. So the whole thing right now is for Godzilla, an exercise in annoyance. They shoot at him. They lasso his teeth. One character, crazy Luke gets a rope around Godzilla's upper jaw and then leaps off of cliff onto the top of Godzilla's head and then rides Godzilla like some sort of bucking bronco. And everyone laughs and points. Because look at old Crazy Luke up there. Yeehaw! And he's shouting, yeehaw! Uh, but Crazy Luke gets tossed by Godzilla. Because Godzilla is mad now. And just throws his head forward. And Crazy Luke goes flying head over heels over Godzilla's snout. And they don't show him hanging onto the rope. And hanging on, you know, and getting lowered gently or anything like that. No, that's the last we see of Crazy Luke. Crazy Luke is dead. Godzilla has killed him. Uh, Godzilla, in anger, lets loose some fiery breath, and it shatters the rocks that have uh, that dropped down in the avalanche. And, and now um, we get into some more human drama as Godzilla goes ahead and goes into the Box Canyon. Uh, but Ford and his men, in order to stop Hawks and his men, uh, from going into the canyon and finding out what is in there, uh, Ford leads his men against Hawks and his men, and there's a brief shootout. The captioning says the gun battle is brief for several reasons. One, the good guys take cover, and the bad guys don't. Two, neither side actually wants to kill. Three, the bad guys are not really bad. Uh, so Hawks and his fellas, they go into the canyon and discover the cattle while Ford gets himself into place because, you know, he's going to, I guess, take out Hawks. You know, if I can't have this cattle, then, then Hawks can't have the cattle. Uh, and so he's on a high perch up on the canyon wall and he's got his gun. He's getting ready to shoot, but he doesn't notice Godzilla sneaking up behind him and sneak. Uh, then Godzilla flicks Hawks. Oh no, flicks Ford off the canyon, just like an insect. You know, the way you would do an ant. Like if you had an ant on your shoulder, he's like, ew, and you just flick it off or a spider or, or whatever. Um, so that's our second person to die from a very, very high fall or low fall. I guess you're falling from the height. And then, you know, like they say, it's, it's not the fall that kills you. It's the landing. But um, he screams and he falls <laughs> so this comic book is one of the dumbest and one of the funnest comics i've had the pleasure to read in this experiment uh and that's a good thing it's it's fun dumb um it's something that is completely ridiculous but at the same time it's 
not so ridiculous that you turn against it. It's just ridiculous enough that you go along with it and you, you can enjoy yourself. If you like Westerns, uh, this is a fun one to get into. If you like Godzilla and Westerns, then, you know, boom, double whammy. Now, there are some problems, but there are also some really good stuff. And one is that the opening splash page is this low perspective image of Godzilla that really gives the sense of scale. And, you know, Herb Trimpey does this a lot in Godzilla. And I've heard from another podcast from, um, um, oh, I just lost the name of the podcast from uh, Dis- Earth Destruction Directive. I did that without even looking it up. Yay, me. Uh, Earth Destruction Directive, uh, he did a series that I stopped listening to because I I started listening to his segments about Shogun Warriors before I knew I was going to be reading Shogun Warriors. So I stopped listening to those segments. Uh, now I have a collection of podcast episodes from Earth Destruction Directive that I've listened to half the podcast. And after as soon as I start reading Shogun Warriors for this podcast... I'm going to listen to the tail end of his Earth Destruction Directive podcast so I can hear what he has to say about um, about Shogun Warriors. And, and now he's going through the Godzilla comics. And it's very fun for me to listen to his new episodes because um, I'm ahead of him. And so by being ahead of him, I every once in a while, oh, another Earth Destruction Directive. He talks about a kaiju movie and then he talks about a Godzilla comic book. I've read, and so it's even more fun to listen to him talk about the Godzilla comics because I've already read them. But anyway, I heard him talking about how um, Herb Trimpey, I, I believe it's Herb Trimpey who was doing the Shogun Warriors art and did a lot of things that show that perspective that just, you know, are from just a low perspective to give a sense of just how big those robot uh, battle suits are. And in this case, it's the same thing. You just see just how big he is. I mean, his feet are just enormous. But then as you're looking up because of the perspective, his head is very small up at the top and it's very, very effective. It's uh, unfortunately then goes from that page into a story about people who, because of that scale, (laughs) really should know better than to do any of what they're trying to do. Uh, based on the scale of the thing that they are facing, that thing being Godzilla. But again, as they are rushing uh, to chase Godzilla um, and they're rushing toward Godzilla, then after the avalanche, there's another awesome splash page that gives one, uh, it gives again, that sense of scale. It's an incredible splash page. uh, (laughs) The the Cowboys are, are low in the panel on the page and they're riding toward Godzilla. And, and as they're riding toward Godzilla, they're all yelling, yeah, you know, and they've, it's a typical, like it's, it's uh it's a roundup kind of thing. You know, they aren't going into battle against, you know, some uh, enemy or anything like that. They're, no, they're, they're going after this thing that they want to capture. <laughs> but, uh, and so as cool as the page looks, as cool as the page is again, the scale that you really are able to get this, sense of the enormity of Godzilla, but the page itself screams to you as you are reading it. These guys are stupid. They are stupid to do this. Now, if you can look past the absurdity and the stupidity of the situation um, of them chasing down Godzilla, I mean, what do they expect to do? What do they expect to do? Do they expect to be able to just like, you know, tie his, his hands and arms and legs together like a, a little calf or something or are they expecting like pull him down with ropes i mean they 
there is no way they could possibly get uh, enough uh, power just to bring him down. And obviously they're coming at him with rifles and, and with six shooters. And, you know, that's not going to do anything to bring him down. I mean, they're angry. I get that. Uh, and if the story had been written a little bit differently, it could be about how anger pushes us to do stupid things that are ultimately only going to harm ourselves and not, uh, you know, not be able to get the revenge we're actually seeking after or something like that. But man, this is ridiculous. But if you can get past all of that, there is a very human story going on here and a very, to me, a very human uh, ending, maybe a humanistic ending even. Uh, I I love the resolution to the gun battle that they have. I mean, you have all this exciting stuff going on where they're going after Godzilla, but then you have this short gun battle and, and they're shooting at each other from, you know, two sides and, and you've got that going on. But then the gun battle just kind of fizzles out because they're all they're all half heartedly into it. And the bad guys who are bad because they're with Ford, they just don't have the same evil motivation to continue. You know, they, they don't care enough to take the battle to its ultimate ending. Uh, these these are guys who, you know, they may come from rival ranches, but, you know, these are guys who you imagine they, they share drinks together down at the watering hole or whatever, uh, the down, down at the cantina. And, you know, they, they may not get along, but, you know, they're going to, they probably laugh at each other's jokes while they're, um, playing pool against each other. And and then every once in a while, there might be a tense moment where one bumps into the other, and then both sides are kind of, wait, wait, what's going to happen here? But um, you can also picture them getting into fist fights at, at the bar or whatever. And and just, you know, but it's it's a it's a friendly fist fight. It's the kind of thing where once the fist fight is done, um, you know, they aren't getting into the fist fight to kill each other. They're blowing off steam and... It's, it's, I mean, you just kind of picture that camaraderie that comes out of, that, that comes out of rivalry. And so these guys, they're friends and they are rivals and they just don't have the desire to escalate the conflict to murder, to killing the other guys. And I, I love this idea. I love this resolution and and just that it shows these these two sides as two sides of people you know who are they're people and they're stopping because they realize the other other side is you know they're my neighbors and you know we're just coming out of this political oh my goodness i guess we're not really coming out of it yet uh, the election here in the united states is done but the political poking each other and and uh knocking each other down i mean i feel like that has just started now um, it's just, it's just nasty. And what I would love is for the people on both sides of the political spectrum or all three sides. I, I, I kind of see three sides politically happening here where you have one side of people who are all in Hillary, one side of people who are all in Trump and one side of people who are not in for anyone and either have to make a decision one way or the other, or have chosen to, you know, a third option, but you kind of have these three sides who are just pushing against each other. And I just wish they would do like what happens here where they just realize, you know what? Those guys aren't bad guys. They're different. 
Yes. And they are anti what I stand for. Yes. And they might be angry or they might be scared or they, you know, but they're my neighbors and they are people. And that's what I think a lot of times we lose sight of is just the fact that, you know, those people aren't idiots. They're people. You know, those people aren't total morons. (laughs) They're people. And yes, I will say, I'll fully admit, there are definitely on all three sides, let's say, uh, people who are morons and people who are evil. Uh, I'll just put that out there too. And, uh, but those are not the people who define the entire side. They're the ones who are most visible, I guess. Uh, Anyway, in this case, you have the people, not the leaders, but the, the followers decide this is a not a battle I can fight and my leader here I I'm not going to follow now that leader being Ford Hawks his people they're in it to win it okay they don't want his their leader to get murdered I mean that's that's a bad thing uh no matter how you slice it but uh Hawks uh rather Ford's Ford's people they they are not they, they're going to draw the line here you got to draw the line somewhere and he has pushed things past their moral acceptability. And so you have them just saying, you know what? No, we're not going to fight these people because these people are not, uh, they're not worth going after just for money. And they lay down their weapons. Now Ford himself, he's gone. All right. And Godzilla, I mean, the question is, did Godzilla intentionally do this? Did he do this to save Hawks by flicking Ford off the, the rock? Or did he do this because Ford was bad? And so Godzilla is going to stop it. So, yeah, the conflict is done. Everyone lays down their guns. And then Godzilla shows up, sneaks up behind Ford. Uh, how does a you know 30-story tall creature sneak up behind someone? Um I guess very carefully it would be the answer to that. But he sneaks up, shows up, kills the one real, actual bad guy. And the cowboys then begin philosophizing. Philosophizing, sorry. Um, so I, now let's, I want to actually quote this, read this. Uh, the, the, I mean, we, we get this from Gabe Jones too. Here's the cowboys talking to each other. Um, Okay, Godzilla has screech, and the gun goes off, but it just goes off because Ford's getting thrown off, and uh, Ford yells, yeah, and then, did you see that? Yes, I did, Hal, although I'm not sure I believe it. Yeah, that's a second scream. I mean, this is a long fall. Mr. Hawks, do you think that monster could have a brain? I don't know, but one thing's for sure. He flushed out the varmints, located my missing cattle, saved my ranch, and stopped a murderer. Only thing he didn't do is save the school marm from a fate worse than death. If he ain't got a brain, he sure is good at winging it. And then, so that's the philosophy stuff going on there, trying to figure out, you know, they don't know if Godzilla did this on purpose, the captioning doesn't tell us anything. Captioning gave us some stuff earlier, but not on this particular element. 
And then we get the punchline. Uh, I hate to say it, Mr. Hawks, but I just can't resist. Go on, spit it out, Hal. Uh, well, who was that masked lizard? <laughs> and yeah, so that's where we are going to end it. Next issue, the beginning of the most imaginatively offbeat epic in Godzilla's history. The unforgettable tale we call of lizards great and small. And just that alone lets me know what's happening because I do remember this arc from the last time I read this. Now, I did not remember the cowboy stuff from the last time I read this, but it's uh, it happened. And here it is, you know. <laughs> But, um, you know, it's just we're getting some wacky, wacky stuff. But I think it's the good kind of wacky, if I remember correctly. Anyway, all things considered, I enjoyed this issue of this comic. I'm glad I read it, and I am excited to to read more. But for now, something I'm not that excited necessarily about, uh, the next segment we are going to be getting into Human Fly once again. So here we are at episode 15, and welcome to round two of episode 15. This is actually my second attempt at recording this. I can't find the first attempt. Um, uh, it was lost somewhere, perhaps in a weird naming convention that doesn't fit what I've been doing. I don't know exactly why it's gone, but it's gone. And, you know, part of it, maybe I can't find it because it was so long since I've done a comic book time machine episode for Marvel's Cosmic Comics. Uh, but I, just for you who are listening, whenever there's a gap in comic book time machine podcasting for my episodes, uh, not for the other guys, because they're doing things on their own time. They have other reasons. But for me, whenever there's a gap, uh, it's usually because I have a writing job that takes up my time. Uh, which in this was the case. Um, I didn't have the extra time to do some comic book time machine stuff and comic book time machine is a podcast that is done primarily just for fun with really no other agenda other than have fun, read comics, have fun with comics. Uh, you know, welcome to level seven. That's the podcast about the Marvel cinematic universe that has an agenda, which is to cover every episode of Marvel's agents of shield. But it also has a timeline that goes along with that. If there's a movie that comes out, we're going to be doing an episode pretty soon after that movie. If there's an episode of the TV show that has happened, well, we're going to be doing an episode about that episode within a couple days. Uh, we're pretty much locked into a weekly schedule with that. Strangers and Aliens also is for fun, but there are other things in play in there as well. And primarily that I'm hosting almost every episode with uh, other hosts and it's hangout time with my friends when that happens. And, you know, there's a serious side to it as well with the, the spiritual side and the, you know, I want to be, I want, I want, I hope it's going to be an encouragement to people and both, but both of those podcasts, welcome to level seven and strangers and aliens have other people involved that I'm working with. And so we have different kinds of obligations to each other than I do here with comic book time machine, especially with the Marvel cosmic comics. Here, my obligations are to have fun reading comics and hopefully give you, the listener, something interesting to listen to. 
Uh, and, and there's, you know, coming out of that, there's some cool things like maybe there's a bit of comics history that comes out of comic book time machine episodes and some comics theory that comes out of it. And maybe a bit of an opportunity for you, the listener, to hear about comics you might never, ever pick up on your own. Case in point, <laughs> human fly. Oh, the human fly. So we're back to it. I'm back to it. And away we go. Human Fly, number 15, cover date, November 1978. But we're going to take our time machine back to August 1978, or we already have taken our time machine back there. You know, sometimes time travel confuses me. Anyway, August 1st, 1978 is the on-sale date, cover price, 35 cents. Page count, 32 pages. And here's our team. Bill Mantlo, Lee Elias... Uh, Bill Mantlo, the writer, Lee Elias, the penciler, Ricardo Villamonte is the inker, Clem Robbins is the letterer, the colorist is Michelle Wolfman, and the editor is Bob Hall. And this issue is called War in the Washington Monument. And I'll admit, reading this story, I was a bit surprised. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't have been. Uh, If you followed the coverage of this series... A lot of times, Bill Mantlo is trying to focus on, well, he's not trying to. He is focusing on this real-life stuntman who they have planted into the Marvel 616 comic book universe to have uh, exploits and adventures on the printed page uh, that goes beyond his real-life stunt career, which, by the way, at this point in time, that stunt career... Uh, included some pretty crazy stunts like riding on top of a 747 and then there was the failed Montreal rocket bike jump and the stunt career basically ended after that failed Montreal rocket jump and he was going to start that new music career you might remember that but uh, if you follow this coverage you've also heard about the kinds of exploits that Bill Mantlo has involved the human fly in and he takes on some pretty serious issues Uh, while doing so in a story that has some pretty ridiculous action. Uh, I mean, there's things like uh, children in uh, negligent boarding homes for orphans. Um, There's the coal miners union issue. There's a number of times where we've had handicapped children in danger, Um, but he does get into disability issues, uh, which is interesting to see uh, taking that on in the late seventies, which is when, Uh, You know, I was very, very young, but as a very, very young child, my father was working with people who were dealing with uh, different kinds of disabilities. And he actually, uh, in some ways, is kind of a superhero in my own life because a big part of his job was to go into institutions and find people who had been institutionalized because of their handicaps, but who could survive outside of the institution who could be a part of like a group home. And the purpose of the group home was to graduate from the group home into their own uh, living arrangement, like in an apartment or something like that. They still had people who would check in on them and make sure that they were okay. But uh, there was some, a couple of these people, uh, Harold and Gordon, uh, who as a kid, I remember very vividly these men that my dad was working with and that he had, taken them out of uh, an institution that when my dad tells me about some of the things that were going on in that institution, uh, you may have seen some documentaries, you may have seen some things like an American Horror Story, but um, 
the, the truth is horrifying, simply more horrifying than American Horror Story because, uh, because it's true. And anyway, uh, this comic book with the human fly is kind of taking on those issues, not the, the deep, dark issues that I've been talking about with the institutional uh, arrangements that, that, that a lot of people had. But um, because human fly himself considered himself a social crusader gave his profits to children's organizations and agencies and in, in real life he did and in on the printed page he's doing that as well and trying to bring i don't know if it's bring awareness uh well no it is it's bring awareness to certain issues that are going on and that's what's happening here is he's bringing awareness to an issue and this issue is veterans rights uh specifically wounded veterans who have have come back from uh from action and who are not doing well uh, for uh, well, different reasons. But uh, this story, War in the Washington Monument, uh, starts when Human Fly and his team, who uh, part of his team is Ted Locke. He's a Vietnam War vet who lost both of his hands, but now with two um, prosthetic metal hands, is Human Fly's stunt engineer, stunt designer. And they were going to visit a friend at the Veterans Hospital. But we open with a splash page where they're fighting the security guys. It turns out the security guys are not the actual security guys. These guys are are there uh, in security uniforms because they are revolting against the hospital's administration. The hospital's administration is trying to get the records for these guys or from these guys uh, and take them away because there's um, – there's a controversy. There's a there's a scandal that the care is not as good as it should be, and by they're taking these records so that the the information can't be used against them or something like that. Anyway, Human Fly and his team have been mistaken for bleeding heart liberal authorities who want to stop the war vets from the hospital t- from taking the, their own hospital records to prove that shoddy care is happening there. Uh, and Human Fly and his team are defeated and locked in a room with only one exit, and that's a window in the ceiling. So Ted uses his ingenuity, and Human Fly gives him his cape, and they use the cape to, like a trampoline, to bounce the Human Fly up to the window. He goes through the window outside and crawls along the edge of the building to re-enter through another window now when he does this he um i don't know how to explain this other than to say he fox a guard what does that mean well quite simply it means the special effect the <laughs> the use on the page is t-h-o-k thok so uh after thocking the guard he lets his team out and they find out that the hospital administrators have actually yes taken all the hospital records, which means that the people who are in the hospital do not have access to those records. They're gone. So they make a phone call, let people know this is what's going on. The administrators are dirty, no good, no good nicks. And also the security guards are trouble. And then we get the setup for the real problem. Uh, You see the person they were going to, to visit is a guy named Slick, and that's Ted's friend. And he is at the Washington Monument. I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, radio uh, announcement that this is happening because, honestly, it's all the exposition we need. 
Uh, this is a WTOP newsflash. Police have now re- reconstructed the events that led earlier this morning to the takeover by two armed Vietnam veterans of the Washington Monument. They forced tourists and guards out at gunpoint. The vets threatened to destroy the monument if their demands are not met. Police are attempting to reason with them. And the demands the demands are to bring the president. <laughs> uh, the president has to come to them personally and let them know that the hospital is being investigated. That's their demand. Uh, unfortunately, the president can't do that. Uh, we'll explain why in a moment. For now, the police are not letting human fly go in to the situation because, of course, he's going to try and insert himself into this situation. Uh, even if he was Captain America, the policeman says, he would not let him go in there. And suddenly I'm having a flashback to when something like this happened to Captain America. <laughs> in issue number 332, 1987, 10 years later, in a much better story arc than we're going to get here. Um, Although that's unfair. This is from one of the best comic book story arcs I've ever read in my childhood, uh, let alone now. It's it's uh, the the opening issue for the trade paperback called Captain America, the Captain, which I highly, highly recommend. A great Captain America story where he gives up being the captain. They put someone else in the suit and uh, hijinks ensue. So anyway, the president can't come because the president, who is not named, but at this point in time would have been Jimmy Carter, uh, the president is in the Middle East. And so the police are trying to figure out what to do, but they're de- the demand of the guys in the Washington Monument that they're going to blow it up if they don't get to talk to the president. Those demands can't be met even if they did negotiate with terrorists. So Human Fly talks his way in. The police let him go because it's going to blow up if they go in and human fly can, you know, climb up the elevator shaft or whatever. So Warren Washington monument could, is the title, but it also could be called elevator shaft shenanigans because it's, uh, that's what happens next. Um, it turns out that the elevator itself, when it goes all the way to the bottom of the monument, it will activate the bomb. That's, that's a problem. Uh, so human fly is going up through the elevator shaft. Ted Locke gets on the radio and talks to the guys in the monument. And inside the monument, we have Larry, who is uh, he has a piece of shrapnel stuck in his head, which might be causing him to see things and be paranoid. Although I, I maybe I mean, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong in this situation because there is definitely wrong uh, things happening with the care that they're getting. But this guy's a little more aggressive than he, maybe he should be <laughs> considering uh, what they're planning to do. The other guy is slick Gordon. Like I said, Ted Locke's friend who's paralyzed from the waist down. So Larry is the aggressive one slick. Needless to say is the, I don't know about this one. And the elevator gets activated as Human Fly is under the elevator. And then Human Fly cuts his way into the elevator, goes in the elevator, and then climbs out of the elevator and ends up over the elevator. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm just reminded of the fly and the cup. Um, Because... 
it's how I used to teach prepositional phrases. Uh, whatever the fly does with the cup is a prepositional phrase. You know, the fly can fly in the cup. The cup, the fly can fly around the cup. And the human fly is going through the elevator. On top of the elevator, they start shooting. Well, I sh shouldn't say they. Larry starts shooting down at it and at him and misses. And this is where it's it's our it's it's our contractually obligated ridiculous moment in a human fly story. This is ridiculous. This is a team ridiculous. And on the A team, it wouldn't even be this bad. They wouldn't do this scene in the A team. They just wouldn't. Uh, he's shooting through an elevator shaft at a guy on an elevator that is coming up toward him. This is the closest thing to actually shooting fish in a barrel that you're going to get in a field situation. <laughs> and he misses over and over again. Uh, now, the elevator is going up because Human Fly has activated that. Uh, they send the elevator back down again and human fly rides the cable up and past the level where slick and larry are now remember how larry couldn't hit human fly he couldn't hit a human sized target in the elevator shaft but he has perfect aim this time when he fires and hits the cable of the elevator and the elevator begins to plummet sort of but human fly I don't know if it's part of the plan, but he's definitely glad that this happened because it activated the hydraulic brakes. So the elevator is not going to get to the bottom and activate the bomb. But now we have a situation. We're in a small room with Larry and Slick and Human Fly enters the small room and Larry puts his gun to Slick's head and then confiscates Human Fly's weapon, pimp cane. Um, something that honestly... I just watched a documentary. Well, I shouldn't say just watched, maybe a month ago about evil Knievel. He walked with the pimp cane. And I'm wondering, is this a stuntman thing? Because human fly himself in real life pictures has this cane. I thought that this was something they might've been adding into the story, you know, for the design, the character design, but no, this is something that he actually carried. And there's proof. There's proof of this, uh, within this issue. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. What Larry doesn't know is that if you don't know what you're doing with a baton, you're going to get in trouble. Because if you activate it, and he does, the uh, the knob on the top goes, fires out with the cable. And it's such a small room. The end of the cane ricochets all over the place. And in an enclosed space like the that they are in, the cable will wrap around whoever is standing with it because human fly knocks slick out of the way. But this thing flies all around the room and tangles Larry up in it. And Larry is, well, he's done. It's all done. Then we get a one panel, not a one page, a one panel wrap up to all of this. And that's we see Slick coming to his new home with a very pretty nurse pushing his wheelchair and human fly welcoming to his new home. And Slick says, yep, I'm going to work now, though. I, he's got a new job. Also, he's going to work with the Congressional Committee on Veterans Rights. And human fly says, start by helping your friend Larry. He needs you now. 
And so there's our happy ending. It covers all the bases we need to get covered. Um, he slick is going to be an agent of change, uh, and not because of a bomb, <laughs> but because he's actually getting involved in the political, um, uh, uh, process and <laughs> help your friend Larry. So that's taken care of as well. Next Niagara nightmare. So let's be honest. There is some stupid stuff going on here. There is some stupid stuff wrapped up in some serious stuff. We have the veterans hospital issues that um, was going on, I guess, way back then. I, I remember hearing about this stuff in the 80s. And and then, of course, recently today with uh, Veterans Affairs uh, scandal going on uh, just a couple years ago, these serious problems came to light. And that is still not over. And honestly, it's still not right. I mean, whatever you believe... Uh, about war, about peace, about pacifism, about military aggression, or whatever you believe, uh, the government that sends its people to war owes them care. The people that have sent those people to war owes them care. Uh, I can understand someone saying I'm against the war, so I don't owe these people anything. And, and there's, I can, I can understand someone saying that. I, I don't agree with it, though. Um, that's that's part of living in a community. That's part of living in a republic. Um, anyway, the government definitely does owe them. And we are the government, more or less. So stepping down from my political platform here, um, they these men who have been sent to do these things uh, to to fight and to to kill and to defend and to see their own um, their own uh, brothers in arms get hurt and and die and and to see these things these these affect them not just on a physical level that is definitely a part of what's going on there there's there's social issues that get involved and and there's uh, emotional issues for them and 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 there's uh, mental issues going on there and it's not simple it's not a simple solution to any of these things that that happen that you know these reactions uh, to the activities of their of their duties and there are long reaching consequences to physical wounds and to emotional wounds and you know i don't know everything about what i'm talking about these issues uh, this, these are things that i'm you know picking up and observing and that kind of thing just it is a big, big problem. And, you know, this comic gets into it a little bit. I mean, clearly they're talking about Vietnam vets. I mean, this is, this is coming on the tail end of, of the Vietnam war or the Vietnam police action or whatever you want to call it. But these guys are veterans of that war. And this is definitely something that would have been very, very visible. And, you know, Larry and Slick have a case that makes sense. They're not getting the care that they need to be able to function, which isn't fair and isn't right. And they are desperate to take it up the chain of the command. And who's at the, the top of that chain of command? The, the commander in chief. Uh, now, in this story, I wish that Larry didn't have shrapnel in his head because that kind of takes the edge off of things. Uh, it gives him a outer reason to have this these inner 
problems instead of dealing with like the actual inner reason to have uh, these problems. But maybe the edge needed to be blunted a little bit. I mean, this this is a comic book. This is meant for for younger readers. Uh, it's dopey and it's not that great. But I love that it does get into more of these social issues that, you know what, Human Fly, the comic, it tries to get in there. There are a couple problems, though. Like, for instance, it is like a one-hour primetime action TV series um, of the time, and then it has to wrap everything up with a nice little bow by the final panel, even if the story takes you right up to that final panel and then uses that one panel to wrap everything up. But, you know, for as dumb as a human fly comic can be this first of all is in the upper half i think of issues and the fact that it gets into issues is is very interesting as well so then we have within the pages of this issue the human fly visits the marvel bullpen and this is um it's a it's kind of a muddy photo spread black and white photos that are a little blurry i mean the printing process does not uh, help things along very much, uh, but they put captions with uh, you know, word balloons on every picture, and you'd see Human Fly with Stan Lee and and Human Fly with Archie Goodman and Human Fly with Bill Mantlo, and then they announced the Human Fly stunt contest where they ask people to send their stunt in and how it can work, and that it will make it into the comic and it will be drawn by a Marvel artist and the person who does this will receive credit for that. And, and then some original art, which uh, original art signed by human fly. That's kind of cool. It's kind of cool, but you know, I, I don't know. Look at this point, nothing is going to change my mind about human fly. Uh, at this point, I don't know how many issues are left in the series. I, but there is nothing about this series that would make me try to recommend it as a whole, I guess, to anyone. I I would recommend issue number one. It's a curiosity. Pick it up if you ever see it. It's a curiosity. I might, you know, before the series is done, there might be a, an issue or two uh, at the end here of the run that honestly are good. And maybe I'll recommend those. I, I don't know. I, I haven't used my time machine yet to, you know, check into how many issues we have left but i i know this series is not not long for this world at this point but i appreciate what they're trying to do with this i appreciate that they were trying to enlighten readers about issues uh like this and i appreciate they're trying to make statements to get people thinking about these things it just would work so much better if things just weren't so goofy. So that's the coverage of the human fly issue number 15. Next segment of the comic time machines, Marvel's cosmic comics will be John Carter, warlord of Mars issue number 18. Now, previously, in John Carter, Warlord of Mars, Marv Wolfman was writing a pretty amazing run on a comic book that was based on new adventures of Edgar Rice Burroughs' space opera hero, John Carter. But then, Chris Claremont, before he was the 
Chris Claremont, before he was that Chris Claremont who wrote the follow-up novel trilogy to Willow, the George Lucas-produced, Ron Howard-directed fantasy movie of the 80s. Uh, oh, also um, before he became the writer of one of comics' greatest creative runs ever in the form of his run on X-Men. Uh, he has taken the reins to John Carter, Warlord of Mars, with his own storyline based on new adventures of John Carter. And that storyline is called Assassins of Mars. This issue is chapter three in Claremont's John Carter run. And so far it has had an assassination attempt on John Carter. And when he recovered from the assassination attempt, he and Dejah Thoris went to investigate and they were captured by some people from a hidden kingdom. And in that hidden kingdom, John Carter really impressed the people there and received a position of power. But Dejah Thoris also impressed the people there. And part of John Carter impressing the people there uh, and then choosing to try to keep Dejah Thoris away from the people uh, there because their uh, women are, are for marriage only. They don't have anything. They don't have any other function. And when I say marriage only, that it means exactly what you think it means. Uh, she has been taken by the leader of that kingdom to be his bride. And basically she is now lost to John Carter forever, which has caused a lot of angst for John Carter. But meanwhile, back in helium, well, that's the title of this issue. And we're going to find out what's going on back in their hometown of helium with their friends and colleagues. The uh, cover date is November 1978, the on sale date, August 22nd, 1978. So that's where we had to set our time machine back to go to August to buy these November cover date books, because as you no doubt know, um, if you've been listening to this podcast, you probably have picked up on it. And probably if you know things about comic book history, you, you know this as well. But the cover date is actually the date that these books would be taken off the stands, not when they were put on the stands. But we went to August when we took our time machine because we wanted to get them fresh and new before people were, you know, shuffling through them and rifling through them and getting them torn and, and ripped and, and all messed up. Anyway, the cover price, 35 cents, and our editor was Roger Stern. The writer, Chris Claremont, penciler for this issue, though, and, you know, this this was a surprise to me, Frank Miller. <laughs> He's... Before he was the Frank Miller, before he was that Frank Miller, who uh, had one of comics' greatest runs ever in the form of his Daredevil run, uh, not to mention the way he kind of reinvented superhero comics for good or for or ill, however you, you choose to look at it. Uh, he and Alan Moore with Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen pretty much guaranteed that there was going to be a lot of darky dark dark going on in the world of superhero comics. Anyway, he was the penciler on this. The inker, Bob McLeod. The uh, letterer, Gene Simic. And the colorist is Bob Sharon. So, meanwhile, back in Helium, Tars Tarkas is being attacked. Like, that's our splash page. That's what we are opening up with. We don't know who is doing the attacking? We don't know why they're doing the attacking. We just know that he's ducking out of the way from a spear. And Cantus Khan seems to think that 
this is not good, that they are assassins. But Tars Tarkas knows, you know what? This is just the way us Tharks, us green Martians say Kaor. I don't know what Kaor exactly means, but that's the way you say Kaor to an old companion. You chuck a spear at them and hope they're good enough to get out of the way and not get hit. Cantus Khan leaves Tars Tarkas and says, if that's how you greet your friends, I'd hate to see how you greet your enemies. And he's right. These guys are pretty tough and brutal people. Now, the Thark who is attacking Tars Tarkas is named Barak, and he has been sent to meet Tars Tarkas in formal combat. He's gotten permission to do this because the people of the, well, the, the, uh, the Thark people kind of view Tars Tarkas as, as a weak link. He is a weak leader. He is being made weak by spending time with these red Martians. And they think that his time with John Carter has caused him to become something less than Thark, I guess would be, I guess the way to explain it. So they will meet in three days at the main Thark hatchery that is abandoned now. And uh, part of the reasons why Barak has chosen this place is that it is a chilling, uh, scary place. But, you know, Tars Tarkas, man, he is so over fear. He's just done with fear. I mean, after defeating and fighting an army of walking skeletons and some of the other stuff that he's gone through with John Carter, this place doesn't bother him at all. So when he gets there, they fight and the battle goes back and forth as a good battle goes. And they end up on this lake of ice, which is something that they have not seen before, apparently, which. okay, sure, I guess so, but. Uh, I find it hard to believe that they have lived on Mars this long without seeing ice, unless maybe the idea is that they haven't seen a body of water like a lake, uh, let alone one that has gotten frozen or something. I don't know. Anyway, the ice breaks and these red hands start reaching up from the waters below and just start grasping and clawing and pulling that Tars Tarkas and Barak and they fight back against this enemy, but they end up fighting back to back against this enemy. Uh, They have a common enemy and they have a common goal. And Tars Tarkas actually throws Barak back to the shore. And just as Barak, you know, stands up and turns around to, to see Tars Tarkas gets pulled under the water. And so Barak has a newfound respect for Tars Tarkas, but he leaves him for dead. Of course, Tars Tarkas is, is not dead. He's still alive. He It's a pretty cool looking panel where he bursts out from the ice, through the ice, uh, having defeated whatever it is that's below the ice. And it's kind of cool that it's a mystery. You don't really know what's underneath there. What are these arms coming from? Who are these arms coming from? And I guess you could even read some symbolism into this, you know, because the people of Mars that he is with, Dejah Thoris's people, John Carter's adopted people, uh, they're they're the Red Martians. And you can maybe see uh, kind of a metaphor of these things coming up from the ice and pulling down at him, um, making him in the eyes of the Tharks, you know, weak or causing him to lose his life, lose his identity as, as a Thark. 
But of course, he bursts out of the ice. He goes and he confronts Beric, and Beric fights him. And Tarstarkus is now totally weak, totally could not stand up against Beric, but he fights. He still does. And Beric has the upper hand, but he just can't strike Tars Tarkus dead. He just can't because of what's what's gone down here. So he lets him live. Now, by their law, by their tradition, uh, that means that since he let Tars Tarkus live, he has technically speaking, he has lost this challenge. And it's one of those things where you kind of see it, you know, if someone is in the middle of this challenge and then runs away then that would count as a loss. And that means that he's not just the loser. He's an outcast. And, uh, you know, it, it's this kind of strange culture thing that totally makes sense. It's, it's a logical culture thing. And so he is going to be an outcast, but he will return. He will kill Tars Tarkas. That's, that's not in question with him. He's just not going to do it right now where Tars Tarkas is weakened. And not only that, he's weakened because he saved Barak's life. And so you have this cultural honor going on and it's, it's that's kind of cool. And you have these, uh, these different things with their, you know, their laws and, and, and traditions and customs. And that's actually what makes this story really work. Well, for me is that you have these twists and turns in the plot and some of it comes from, you know, creative, clever fighting, <laughs> but some of it comes from the laws and their sense of honor, which it's alien to me. Uh, and therefore it's, I discover it as the plot progresses. They aren't discovering anything new here, but I am. And, and so it's not so strange though, when it just pops up and all of a sudden, Oh, I'm going to let you live. Oh, that means you're an outcast. It's it's new to me. It's fresh to me and it's discovery. It's it's complete new discovery as I'm going through the story and I like where it takes me and the setting is another thing where we kind of discover it as we go along as far as the uh, the hatchery and the, the lake of ice and the plot that we have that's against Tars Tarkas. It's a natural progression that comes from his friendship with John Carter and his friendship with the red race of Martians. And the idea that the people of, well, the, the Thark people consider him uh, corrupted uh, and, and not a true green Martian, I guess, not a, not a true Thark. And so I, I'm liking all the intrigue here. It's really, really neat. And we, now we do get also two pages with John Carter to remember his problem and that his wife has been taken from him. And then we also get to spend time with Dejah Thoris, who's being groomed to be Kara's bride. And she plans to play the part until she can get the upper hand against him. But she, I mean, she, just playing the part is courageous defiance. And it's kind of interesting the way they, they play that up. Um, it's also implied that this means, you know, she's not just saying, hi, I'm going to be your wife. Uh, she it looks like she's going through with it. It looks like she's going to go ahead and um, endure what that means. And John Carter calls it courage. You know, he, he doesn't see it as, as a betrayal. He doesn't see it as um, 
anything that she is doing wrong. It's, it's in fact, uh, this courageous thing that she's doing. So, uh, Johnny Carter, Warlord of Mars issue number 18 here is it's a winner. I mean, uh, Chris Claremont has not managed to top the high heights that Marv Wolfman took me to with some of the earlier John Carter stories. But this issue makes me say, you know what? We've, we're in good hands. There's some good stuff going on here. Now, the art is better than last issue. Better than last issue. This is not Frank Miller at the top of his game. This is not Frank Miller. I, I honestly think this is more the paycheck Frank Miller. Uh, and it's not only the paycheck Frank, Frank Miller who's doing work to get money because, hey, it's comics and it's a job. But it's also him having, you know, still learning his craft and working with an inker who is not his best complimentary uh, inker. And I just jumbled that way up. But bottom line is the artwork is decent, but it's not anything great. It's better than last issue, though. So that's that's all I have to say, really, about John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 18, which brings this month almost to a close. We are going to have one more segment to talk about the cover date, November of 1978. That segment is what I call Ben's bullpen bulletin and it will feature machine man and devil dinosaur and a look back at the ad pages that appeared in the comic books that marvel published with the cover date of november for this segment i'm going to be taking a look at machine man and Devil Dinosaur. There are eight issues for each one of them. They started at the same time. I believe they are going to end at the same time. I may be wrong about that, but I, I believe that they end at the same time. And they are both by Jack Kirby. That's why I include them. I've explained this before, but in case this is anybody's uh, first time visiting the podcast, taking a trip with me in the comic book time machine, um, this these, these comic books, Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, were Jack Kirby's creation. And I believe they came, they both came out of uh, the work he was doing on the Marvel adaptation and then the Mar the Marvel continuation of 2001, A Space Odyssey. In the last couple of issues of 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, he, he created Mr. Machine, who uh, changed the name to Machine Man when he got his own comic book. But that was uh, a direct result of the monolith from 2001, is that this robot was kind of given a new life or actually maybe not even given a new life, but given a life. Meanwhile, devil dinosaur takes place in the past. And so some of the future stuff that, that Jack Kirby was doing is kind of being built on and, and being uh, continued in machine man. But then he also did, you know, segments that happened in the past. Now they happened very differently in the past uh, than they did in 2001, the movie uh, and, it was very much a Jack Kirby thing. And so with devil dinosaur, it gives Jack Kirby a chance to do that thing. And you know, the last couple of issues of devil dinosaur had to do with aliens coming down and um, not benevolent aliens. They are definitely, they weren't uh, uh, benevolent at all. They, they had nefarious malevolent purposes for coming, but that was the last few issues. Now in this issue of devil dinosaur, we are getting right back into the dinosaur Saturday morning cartoon action that, that features 
dinosaurs and that features um, cavemen. So I guess we'll start there. We'll, we'll start with Devil Dinosaur, then we'll go into Machine Man, and then we'll talk about some of the ads and some of the copy that is in uh, the November comic books. So Devil Dinosaur issue number eight is entitled Dino Riders. And writer penciler, Jack Kirby, inker, letterer, Mike Royer. The colorist is George Rousseau. And the editor is Jack Kirby. Um, the story is simple. Uh, Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur walk the land once more after having they dealt with all the events of the previous issues with the aliens and the giant ants and stuff like that. He's tracking his own people because they've run away and they are afraid of him. Uh, they're afraid, I guess not of moon boy. They're afraid of devil dinosaur when it comes down to it. And he finds them and he leaves devil dinosaur behind. Uh, so he can go and talk to them and they're not going to you know, run away because they see a giant red Tyrannosaurus Rex. They don't trust moon boy as long as he is spending his days with devil dinosaur but they also have another problem and that's the dino riders and the dino riders just happen to have seen moon boy riding devil dinosaur and anyone riding a t-rex not it's a feat that none of them have achieved they all ride on small, smaller dinosaurs and their leader rides on a triceratops they, they call it a, a thunderhorn which is kind of cool i mean the the people of this world have their own name for the different dinosaurs and stuff. And so Triceratops is a, a thunder horn and their leader rides it like a knight. I mean, he has this great big long uh, spear, this great big long lance thing. So the Triceratops becomes a Quinceratops, maybe. Oh no, Quadceratops. Anyway, uh, the bad guys, the dino riders, take devil dinosaur now it's not an easy battle for them to win but they do eventually win they are clever fighters and they put mud on his eyes and they wrap up his face and they they take him they take him captive and the intention is for the leader to break him and to ride him meanwhile moon boy is trying to convince his friends to help him get devil dinosaur back. And they don't want to do that. But then they realize if we don't help get devil dinosaur out of the hands of the dino riders, the dino riders are going to be that much more dangerous. So they agree to help him. So the dino riders are doing everything they can to break devil dinosaur, but he will not be broken. They bring out the witch doctor and the witch doctor tries doing, you know, magic -y stuff and that doesn't do anything. Nothing can tame uh, devil dinosaur. But in the midst of some of the ceremony stuff that they're doing, Moon Boy and his people, the people of the valley, they attack. They rise up against their oppressors. And now it's the thoughtful and clever early man, I guess, versus the forceful and strong early man who are riding dinosaurs. But they're riding dinosaurs but they aren't as clever. And so there's no doubt where the battle is going to go. And the battle, the final battle comes down to devil dinosaur versus the leader on his thunderhorn. And there can be no doubt who the victor will be, but it is a cool looking battle. And when it's done, moon boy and devil dinosaur ride off into the sunset. They continue their wandering. I almost expect the lonely man theme from the incredible Hulk, uh, to start playing on the piano, but you know, pianos haven't been invented yet. And they are headed now to the witch 
and the warp. And this issue of Devil Dinosaur, above all, feels like the Saturday morning cartoon Devil Dinosaur thing that Jack Kirby was kind of envisioning. This feels like a toy commercial from the 80s. And I know there was some sort of Dino Rider thing in the 80s. I never really got into it, but I do remember it. And I think there was even a cartoon for it. Um, it involved technology and it involved, um, you know, like armor and missiles and stuff that you put on a dinosaur. And then you had a little guy who would sit like in a control cockpit seat. Um, these guys are just, you know, they're, they're putting harnesses and on, on the dinosaurs to kind of control where it's going to go and everything like that. So it's, it's neat. It's cool. There's lots of toy potential, but it's not a Saturday morning cartoon. And the toy potential for the Dino Riders, I'm pretty sure, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Jack Kirby was involved, but I'm I'm pretty sure he was not. And it just is kind of that what could have been, what could have been. And then there is Machine Man. And again, this is Jack Kirby doing everything. Well, not everything, but he's the writer, he's the penciler, he's the editor. His inker and letterer is, again, Mike Royer. And this time the colorist is Petra Scotes. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Anyway, August 22nd was the on-sale date. It's 35 cents, just like all these comics. And it starts out with a pretty kind of... It's a fun phrase. It's fun phrasing. When they put a super machine in a super trap, they have to expect a... Super Escape, which is the title of this story. Continuing directly from the last issue, Machine Man is in a missile silo where they have captured him. There is no way for him to get out. It's basically a great big long concrete metal pit that he's in. And the bad guys intend to copy him and make an army of him. Meanwhile, the army is worried that he's missing. And so they are, you know, they're they're looking for where he could possibly be because you know they understand the, the danger here if these people are able to copy him it's going to be a real serious serious problem so he's down in this missile silo and it takes him a while but he eventually decides he's going to take the weapons system out of his hand and use it to power up his legs and give his rocket legs a super boost. And he activates his rocket feet power and launches himself out of the missile silo like a missile. Why? Because, because we wouldn't have him escape any other way. He's in a missile silo. Uh, of course, that's the way Machine Man is going to escape. Uh, he has one more escape in this comic that's even more of a, of course he's going to do that. Because it's Machine Man and we wouldn't have it any other way. Now, one thing I do appreciate about the character of Machine Man and about the the style of Jack Kirby's writing is that Machine Man is just, he's sarcastic. He's sarcastic and snarky. In page 10, when he's escaping, but then they zap him with his sonic ray. It's just, I really like Machine Man's dialogue. The bad guy comes with his sonic ray and says, you able to walk? And Machine Man says, if you're able to shoot. And the other guy says, bet on it, chum. Now get up nice and easy and go where I go. 
And Machine Man says, sure, sure. I don't have any other plans at present. Just lead the way. And so um, they're mad at him because he they they made a deal with him that he would come to this into this trap and they wouldn't hurt his his friend. And he says, I promised to come in, but I didn't give my word to stay. And yeah, he's just he's got this sarcastic streak that uh, really adds to the the personality of the character and, and makes it beyond just being a robot. And it's something that I've seen before, but usually that sarcastic streak is coming from uh, it's coming from a, a dour um, melancholy machine man. This machine man just doesn't even care anymore. Uh, this machine man, he, he just he, he just is going to say what's on his mind um, and just, you know what? Who cares? You, you can shoot me if you want, but you're not going to get what you want. And so I'm just going to run my mouth. Anyway, uh, they recapture him and he lets loose with his super snark. And his weapon systems are now down because he took them out of his legs and put them into his or took them off his hands and put them into his legs. And so now he has to reassemble his weapon system. But they they take him and he is led before the boss, the big boss, and he confronts the big boss about what you're going to do. What are you going to do with me after you're done? What are you going to do with the copies? Blah, blah, blah. And they shoot him with a sonic gun again and he goes limp. But he's playing dead. They put him on a table where they're going to copy him. And as they leave him alone to prepare to copy him, he powers up and he escapes and he fights his way through the walls and he's going to get out of the base. But the big bad guys are all, you know, we're going to blow up the base and it's going to be like a nuclear explosion and you're going to die and you, it's going to go off in 10 minutes. But by that time, we're going to be out of the range of the blast. Will you? And he says, well, I'm going to find a way out because he doesn't want to die. And so he finds a pneumatic railway. And so apparently there is this pneumatic uh, train that is just speeding away. Well, of course, they didn't leave one behind for him. So what does he do? You remember the tank treads that he had in his arms? Uh, he and I don't know where this is going as he starts doing this, but he uh, activates the tank treads in his arms. Then he takes off the, the wheels from the tank treads and fashions them into skates that will uh, go on the railway and will fit on the railway and he can use his rockets to make him speed down the rail the the, the railroad <laughs> i'm just wondering i thought he had skates you know uh he's had skates before he's used skates before why isn't he doing that now why did he have to use the tank treads it doesn't matter it was it was all just an excuse to get him to be speeding down the railway while the, the mountain is getting ready to explode. And then the mountain does explode. The question is, is machine man's still inside and will he survive? And honestly, we know the answer to that question, but this whole thing was just kind of by the numbers. And it reminds me of Saturday morning cartoons it reminds me it actually reminds me of, uh, in episode two of Star Wars, when all of a sudden R2-D2 can fly. And why can R2-D2 fly? Because the story needs him to fly. Now, did we ever see him fly before? No, no. Does that matter? 
No, no. He just does it, right? And it, it's just something he can do. And that's what this, I just get the impression here is that it's just, he pulls out, oh, I'm going to pull off my fingers and power up my legs so I can blast off out of the, the missile silo. He just has the stuff he needs at the time that he needs it. And he doesn't have the stuff that he has shown before that would actually help him to get out of the situation. He doesn't use that stuff because it doesn't fit the idea that Jack Kirby had for him to do. And so why would he bother using this thing that would actually fit the situation when it doesn't fit the solution that Jack Kirby wants to do? It just feels like so many times when I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons like Super Friends or Scooby-Doo or, or something like that, when you know, Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid, I should say, where it's just they're just going through the story and they just have the things that they need that show up when they need them. And it doesn't have continuity and they're not even bothering with continuity because you know what? Who cares? It's just a Saturday morning cartoon. And I get the feeling here. Um, the character is written well, but at the same time, the story is not. This just isn't the strongest machine man tale. So with that said, it's time to move on to take a look at the inside of this month's comics. And on the back, I was excited to see this back ad. This is an ad I remember vividly from my comic books when I was a kid. And it's uh, for the Expert Builder series, the new Lego Expert Builder series. And it's a picture of a really complicated looking uh, car without a without a frame, just the insides. And you have all the gears that move and the steering wheel that turns and turns the wheel. And I think this is what became like the Technic series or something like that. But it says, move it, steer it, shift it, build it. New. They're here. The most challenging, most exciting building sets ever. And this, I remember seeing. I never had any of these sets. I believe my older cousin Greg had one, but I did not. So uh, that was something that I was excited to see this ad because I remembered this ad. There's, of course, the Satisfy Your Meat Tooth with Slim Jim. There's Grit. There's... um the spider-man the energized spider-man and again my cousin had this he had this one it came with a i don't know if it came with a helicopter but it had he had a spider copter and it was just a 12 inch maybe 13 inch uh spider-man figure very stiff didn't move anything except it had a uh, a web that came out of its arm out of its hand and you could use that to make him climb up Another ad that got me excited, though, was Behold, the interchangeable world of the Micronauts. And I'm very excited because Micronauts, that's coming soon. I don't know when, but it is coming soon. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to take my trip in my time machine and look and see what's on the shelf in the old stop shop. And there'll be Micronauts. It says, introducing the most incredible starship ever, the remote control motorized battle cruiser. And the font they use reminds me of uh, Battlestar Galactica, actually, which is something else that's coming soon. <laughs> so I'm, again, excited to see. Uh, you can make seven different space vehicles at one time or combine all 72 parts into the galaxy-spanning galaxy spinning battlecruiser. Now, what's most interesting to me about this is special marvelous offer. Enjoying the amazing world of the Micronauts is more fun than a barrel of space monkeys, but just because we love you, We'll send you two free Marvel comics when you cut out and send the upper left-hand corner of the Battlecruiser box, which includes the number 71054 on the front panel. 
I have no idea what the comics are because the Micronauts comic has not begun yet, but it excites me. It's coming soon. We have some more flea market pages uh, with the different kinds of things you'd see. Um, let's see here. Turning the pages, more flea market stuff. No, no, that's not flea market. That's sales leadership club. It's the child pyramid scheme of the day. Um, there's the sweepstakes from <laughs> Milk Duds. It's the infamous Milk Duds Super Duds sweepstakes. And the Super Dud prize is to be entered in a special drawing and win a Schwinn 10-speed bicycle. Um, <laughs> Dr. Doom is shilling for Milk Duds these days, it seems. Also, if you order five titles, subscriptions to either Spider-Man, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Conan the Barbarian, Avengers, Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Daredevil, Thor, or Godzilla. If you get five of those, you get a free subscription to Star Wars, which apparently they don't give you an option to just subscribe to. But you can also subscribe to Pizzazz and get six months of your favorite comics free. So subscribe to Pizzazz and choose one title amazing spider-man avengers captain america defenders fantastic four incredible hulk invaders marvel tales featuring spider-man thor or star wars uh you get six issues of that free for subscribing to pizzazz and the, i just have to say the pizzazz ads are finally looking like hey you want to get this but not because of what the book or what the, the magazine actually is but rather because you get a free free six issues from another title uh, Thor is uh, fighting for fruit pies in Thor. Good overcomes evil. And how does good overcome evil? Well, the, <laughs> the bad guy stops in his tracks at the site of Hostess Fruit Pies, which is no surprise to anyone. Well, that about wraps it up then. So that is the Marvel Cosmic Comics of August 1978, but with cover date, November 1978. And I have to say thank you for joining me on this journey. And we will be going back in time once more to this time to September 1978 to take a look at our next round very soon. Our next round will include some Human Fly, Godzilla, some Star Wars, etc., etc. And I believe... Um, we may be looking at the end of Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, mainly because that time machine that I use for Devil Dinosaur, also known as the hardcover collected edition, um, it's very thin. It's very thin at the point we're in. So we also have issue no, or not issue, but episode number 100 of Marvel's Cosmic Comics coming up soon. I'd like to do something special for that. I just don't know what, and I'm not sure how to do it without breaking up the rhythm too much. But we'll see. We will see. And I don't know. So next episode will be episode 99, the 99th Marvel Cosmic Comics coverage uh, segment. If you're listening to this on the Com Comic Book Time Machine made feed, then you might not... Uh, the, well, the numbering is not as significant over there, um, but there I there will be something special. I'm just not sure exactly what it will be. 
So we'll see. We'll see. May, uh, I have an idea. I have an idea now. Suddenly I have an idea. I think episode 99 might be that John Carter uh, Warlord of Mars annual that I missed. <laughs> and that episode 100 might be the... I, I have a couple Marvel movie hardcovers that I haven't taken a look at yet. We've done the original trilogy, but I have the prequel trilogy that, that needs to be looked at. So maybe that'll be what I do to make it special. To make episode 100... I guess also 99 would be an, an offbeat. One of them will be one. One will be the other. I don't know yet. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for putting up with me and for putting up with my rambling about these things. But uh, I hope you had some fun while we were doing it because I know I sure did. So as I said, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day or night or afternoon or whenever it happens to be when you listen to this. And Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware.